Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Brent Bishaw of Permanent Capital. We'll be talking to him about how he got started, what he does, how he sees the economy after... Uh, COVID and the shutdown. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Brent. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. I should have mentioned too, we're going to talk about your book a little bit. But first of all, uh, for folks who don't know, you've, you, you've changed, your firm has recently changed the name to Permanent Capital. Can you just talk a little bit about, or Permanent Equity, I'm sorry. I don't permanent be... Equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Permanent Equity. It's, look, it's, it's a new name. So you, everyone, I, I still say adventures for, the, for, for quite a while. <laughs> so so what, what is Permanent Equity? Yeah, so Permanent Equity is a, a private equity firm. It's uh, we, we like to describe ourselves though as a family of companies that acquires family-owned companies. Um, when you think of private equity, you think of um, you know buying with very, a lot of like a lot of debt. You're going to try to flip them in a couple years, like the, the LBO model, and uh, we're about as far away from that as possible. So we like to partner with um, you know closely held family businesses. Um, we like to um, typically use no debt in our transactions and um, work with them to uh, grow the business. I mean, um, it's built on kind of the first principles of how every family uh, built their business. I mean, if you've, uh, if you've got a family business been around for a long time, you typically have not uh, leveraged it a lot over the years, uh, or if you've been very selective in how you brought on debt. Um, and I think we're living through a period right now that explains why. Yeah, I'd love to get into the detail of how you look at targets and how you manage after you acquire, but let's start way back at the beginning. Uh, you were an entrepreneur initially? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So I was getting my law degree, my MBA, and met my wife who was getting her PhD. Gosh, we were, that was a long time ago. Uh, it was 2006, seven. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, started a business uh, in the marketing space and ended up developing a, a kind of a small grouping of uh, regional marketing companies. And then had a mutual friend say, hey, you should meet this guy. He just got left at the altar for the second time. And that was in 2000. Nine, and uh, I said, "Great! Well, I guess that should mean I should try to go buy his business." And uh, the guy had no idea that's what I was going to do. And I, uh, I don't know. I look about what twenty four, twenty five now. I looked about fourteen then. And uh, What's set the a secret? Table for this guy. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's the baby face is is uh, I don't know. It feels like I never age, but I'm sure that'll catch up to me eventually. All this like incredible flip. Um, but uh, but anyway, so uh, ended up acquiring that that firm uh, over ten years ago, and uh, that got into the world of acquisitions. And I mean, I literally, I I did my first, I guess, private equity deal before I knew there's an industry called private equity. Um, and then just tried to learn as much as I could on it. I mean, you know, had started businesses, had operated businesses myself, and then had acquired this business. And um, you know, a lot of it was the same. I mean, you know, we we like to joke that there's a everything tastes like chicken layer to uh, to business. And uh, but so there are some obviously nuances and 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 differences. And so um, kind of set off on this journey of trying to understand um, what businesses were out there, who owned them, what situations were they in, uh, what were their plans, and and is there an opportunity for us to fit into the marketplace. 
in a way that was meaningful for us and eventually for our investors, um, but also meaningful for the for the families that uh, wanted to keep these businesses going. So you were you started out. It was a marketing firm, and you had you had through running that firm, you had done some acquisitions of regional marketing firms before you sort of embarked on a change of industry. No, well, yeah. So, so the first business uh, that we that we acquired was MediaCross, uh, which was kind of in the marketing space. I mean, they're they're a, a recruitment marketing firm, so they focus on um, recruiting um, uh, very, for a very specific branch of the military um, called Military Seal of Command. They they also uh, work with a lot of uh, educational institutions to help recruit students. So um, that was the first acquisition, and then over time, we moved outside of that. I mean, you kind of. I think like anything else, you 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 sort of go a little bit tangential to what you're doing and then you go tangential to that and it kind of continues to move out. And so if you think about the portfolio today, we're in construction, manufacturing, um, still in military recruitment, still on Media Cross today. Um, and that's kind of a part of our long-term hold strategy for these companies. And we can talk about the fund and how we can do that. But um but yeah, we're in uh, um, we're in a lot of different different industries, and so um, it it gives us an unusual seat to see kind of the commonalities between these businesses, as well as there's some very big differences. Uh, I know that you had a meal with Warren Buffett, and uh, you, you you've probably uh, like many of us taken on some of the precepts that he espouses. Uh, one of them is circle of competence. How do you get comfortable with? a business that might be something that you haven't seen before or might be you would consider outside your circle of competence not do it or would you is that a chance for study yeah well so um i, I think obviously like any answer like this can be situation dependent i would say our circle of competence instead of being industry specific is size specific so i think there's um, we like to focus on these businesses that are typically between three million and eight ten million dollars of earnings when we're um, uh, acquiring them and you know those types of businesses are, are in a really unusual situation where they are, you know, too big to be small, but too small to be big, and they're either kind of right on the line of professionalization, either right before or kind of right after it. And so our circle of competence is is, is working with those companies which you know are going to be if if we're getting involved with them, hopefully excellent at the thing they do, but probably have some rough edges a, across kind of the, the the disciplines that you would say are kind of the business of business. So what we're able to do is to come in and say, okay, look, you, you guys continue to do the the thing that you're good at, right? That that has that that sort of um, moat around it, if you want to kind of use uh, traditional value investing terms. But um, but we're able to help come in and sort of augment with skills and and maybe a perspective that's unusual for that type of size of company. Um, so I would say, you know, there are certainly things that we look at all the time that we say, hey, this is just above our pay grade. There's just nothing we can do with this. Um, and then there's a lot of companies, I would say the vast majority are fairly easy to understand. I mean, unlike large conglomerates, you know, the mechanics of these businesses are fairly simple, right? I mean, if you're in a construction firm, it's, you know, who's buying it? What is the actual work being done? Why are you superior? You know, how, what's your performance delivery on time? Um, you know, sort of what supplies do you need? I mean, the mechanics of it are fairly straightforward. I mean, it would take you 15, 20 minutes to actually understand the core. Now, that's not to 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 say that the skill itself is easy by any means. I mean, quite quite to the contrary, there are um, incredible nuances to each one of these businesses that make them really special. Um, but in terms of the sort of macro layer, I mean, it, it's fairly straightforward to understand them. Are you uh, seeking to professionalize them, or are you totally hands off when you acquire them? You require management in place, or do you bring your own management? How does that work? 
Yeah, so it's again, it's situation specific. We have partnered with um, sellers who've rolled forward and still remained with the company, um, uh, and we've done it where we bought out 100% and uh, and helped find new leadership for the company. So it's been both. Um, what I would say is the commonality. We are, um, you know, I've never worked in another private equity firm, so I don't know. And I think that you know you can't sort of paint anything with a broad brush, but it seems like we're far more active than uh, a normal private equity firm. So and when I say active, we try to be helpful. I mean, our whole thing is we don't want to annoy the people with, you know, uh, more reports and, and more um, sort of distraction. We want them to stay focused on what they do, but we do have some very unusual skill sets that, that aren't um, common in that segment of the market. And we're able to express those, whether it's in marketing, advertising, sales, technology, operations, finance, and accounting. Um, we're able to help step in. And when you get a cease and desist order, you know, how, how, how big of an alarm fire is that? Right. Uh, you know, um, we're able to help diagnose that, um, you know, when, when looking at new technology contracts, I mean, we have, you know, people on staff who've done a lot of that, right. We're able to help guide and kind of counsel. So what we say is, you know, look, we have some governance side of the, uh, of the business that we say, Hey, you know, these are the things that need to be done. You know, we're gap audited. Um, uh, you know, we want to run a clean ship, right. Um, but at the same time, like that's not where the focus, you don't make money doing that. That just protects your downside. Um, we really want to give them the opportunity to hopefully prosper um, far more and all of us win together in the process. So you've uh, recently in the last few years launched your first fund and then raised a second one. And I know that some of the impetus for that was from the O'Shaughnessy. So can you just talk a little bit about that process and, and, yeah. and how that's changed what you do? Yeah, well, so, um, yeah, so I met Patrick through Twitter um, and uh, he asked a, a question about capital allocation and I was, uh, you know, I thought, well, I was, I'm a capital allocator, I'll, I'll answer it. He had no idea, you know, he had no idea that, that there were people out there that did what I did. And so we got on the call and and he was like, okay, so tell me what you do. And I kind of, you know, gave him the 30 second uh, elevator pitch and he said, yeah, I don't want to talk about anything that I thought I was going to talk about today. Can we just talk more about that? And um, so we probably had, I don't know, three or four good conversations um, over, I don't know, a six month time frame, And then Patrick said, Hey, do you mind if I fly to St. Louis and can we meet up there and, and let's, uh, let's chat. And so we just spent a day together and it was just, it was fantastic. We talked the entire day about life and business. And uh, at the end of it, he said, um, great. Well, uh, yeah, I think my family wants to invest. And I said, I, I don't know what you mean. Like there's, there's, we've never taken outside capital and we have no structure to, and, I don't know what you mean. And he said, well, you should. And I said, okay, well, wh what do you recommend? And he said, I don't know, make us an offer. And so it was the first time that anybody had said, you know, said that to us. It was always, uh, we had talked to family offices in the past before then. And it was always, hey, here's our box. You got to fit into it. We want to do a hold co-structure. We'll do this and that and this and that. And it just never sat well with us. Uh, we never could kind of get there. And, uh, you know, Patrick took the exact opposite with his family and Jim, Jim as well and said, um, make us an offer. And so I did. And they said, yeah, a little tweak here, a little tweak there. looks good. And I said, okay, great. Now what do we do? And he goes, well, I'll help you raise the rest of the money. And so that was, um, it was just a beautiful gift. Um, they, they helped us. I mean, look, we're, uh, I don't have connections to wall street. Um, uh, just a, just a, a team of us operating out of a house in Columbia, Missouri, right? So it's, <laughs> it is a, a far cry from what you think of as traditional private equity. Um, and so we raised, uh, the first fund which was just $50 million. Um, we invested that across five companies over the last two years and then just, uh, announced, um, a $248 million fund in December. And, uh, so we're starting to invest out of that. So it's been, it's been a really, uh, it's been a fascinating ride. I mean, uh, lots of growth, 
Um, been amazing to see how the teams come together. Um, we're still trying to figure it out. I mean, I don't think anybody has the exact roadmap, especially under the current circumstances. I, I followed you on Twitter uh, while you were going through this process or, or maybe just after you announced that you'd done it and I saw some of the interesting conversations that you, you related on it. Just that if folks find it very hard to, uh, or folks who are familiar with private equity find it very hard to uh, understand the structure or understand the reason why the, the, the main point of difference seems to be that the fund is very long-term. I think you said it's 27 years or yeah, so we we lock our capital for a minimum of 27 years. There's actually an option to renew at year 25. Um, so it's it's functionally permanent capital. Uh, I mean, is what it is. And and then the other thing that's unusual is how we do fees. We actually do no fees, no reimbursements of any kind, and then we take a percentage of the free cash flow of the companies above a hurdle uh, as we start to invest the money. So um, it's very entrepreneurial. It's very long term. Um, and my argument would be it's exactly like a family, right? Like if you think about it. Um, it is, uh, you know, families eat last, right? The owners eat last. And so just like us, we want to, as the investors in these family owned companies, we want to eat last. Um, and, um, if we perform great, we should get paid for it. And if we don't, um, you know, we should probably do something different. We shouldn't get paid for it. What's the, what's the mechanism by which the capital is released at the end of 25 years? Do you, do you expect to list or do you expect to cash folks out or do you, can you talk about that? Yeah, well, so I mean, the short answer would be, uh, we'll figure it out. We don't know. I mean, if we have a basket of, um, let's call it, you know, gosh, 15 to 25 businesses um, that uh, I'm sure through the years, we're not opposed to selling. Um, we just want to sell for the right reasons. We think there's some good reasons and bad reasons to sell. And so can you um, go into that a little bit after this? I'll come back to that. But yeah, yeah, that, uh, of course. Um, but I think so at the end, I mean, we'll have a basket of, of hopefully good companies. I mean, there's always going to be a market I guess, absent a global pandemic for a short period of time, there's always going to be a market for um, good assets. And um, and so I guess if we were uh, to hit the 25 year mark and and our uh, LPs uh, decided not to vote in interest uh, to renew for another 25 years, then we would uh, go ahead and, and spend that next two years uh, winding it down and uh, and moving on. Uh, but that's a really long ways from now. I mean, I, I you know, the, the idea was that we would just want to be in a position when we acquire something not to be in the mode of when we're going to sell it. And so we're just not in that mode. Um, when we acquire something, we're acquiring it based on um, certainly the financials and the sort of the the where they sit in the industry stack that they're in, where's their competitive advantage, their moat, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, as well as obviously who are their people. And then, you know, we just want to treat them really well over a long period of time. Um, to, to the question about uh, when will we sell? So it's funny, I'll have- um, Well, just what are some good reasons why you'd consider that? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so owners, uh, it's interesting, uh, I had a conversation with an owner probably six months ago. And he said, okay, so, so you're agreeing never to sell my, my business, right? And I said, no, not at all. And he goes, well, if you're not going to agree never to sell my business, then why wouldn't I just go with traditional private equity? And I said, well, do you think there's something inherently wrong with selling the business? And he said, absolutely. I don't want my business sold ever. And I said, well, you're selling the business. And he kind of paused for a second and took a step back and goes, well, well, yeah. And I said, so maybe we can agree that there's good reasons to sell and bad reasons to sell. I think that unfortunately, traditional private equity is hamstrung by mostly bad reasons to sell, which is you have to uh, return the capital back to your investors. Um, I mean, if you think about a traditional sort of seven year term, three one year extensions, um, you know, you're, you're, and, and from a fundraising cycle, we can talk about this, but like everything's geared up to basically holding an asset for no longer than three, maybe four years. Um, if you hold it for longer than that, I mean, and certainly some do, um, it's kind of almost frowned upon. 
uh, in the industry. And so if you think about it, three or four years, that's not very long. And heck, some companies are flipped in under a year. So, you know, you can't make good long-term decisions if you have a short time horizon. There's just no way. It's impossible. And so, um, you know, we we think that by not having the intention of selling, we're going to operate these businesses in a good long-term mindset as if we're never going to sell. And then if somebody comes along and, and we think that the, um, the, the price they'd pay and that they'd be a good, better long-term owner than we would, um, I think it would be uh, problematic if we wouldn't be open to selling. Now, the reality is that we get offers quite frequently, none recently, uh, based on the current circumstances, but uh, before that quite frequently for the assets that we have. Um, and most of the time, the answer is really easy. It's just no. Um, and we always try to talk about it with the, the leadership teams. We'll have open discussions uh, with them. Um, but we, you know, we're very optimistic about what's in our portfolio and the long-term growth. And we think that a lot of these companies are just on the very front end of um, hitting the growth curve. And we just want to be able to support them the entire way up. How are you sourcing the uh, the deals that you're doing? Because that is that is. Uh one of the more difficult things to do in this business is to find companies that are available for sale. It's not as simple as going and looking at any of the business sales websites. They seem to be filled with nightclubs that you can buy on two times revenue. Yes. How, how yes. do you? How, what's the What's the process for that? Well, so we're in an unusual position. So we we're probably the only private equity firm that I'm aware of that doesn't go outbound uh, and try to convince people to sell us their business. In fact, we actually take the opposite tact, which is we try to talk people out of selling their business. Um, so when people come to us, we try to have very sobering conversations. I mean, a lot of that is the reason why we wrote the book, The Messy Marketplace, was it's kind of the first five to seven hours of conversations we want to have with a seller when they come in. And in the book, we specifically talk about how the math just is pretty straightforward. If, if you sell your business, um, you're going to have less income in the future, assuming that the business works out and continues to grow and prosper. Um, and so, you know, you really got to have a, a desire for a life change far beyond the financial resources. Um, I mean, we have a kind of a saying around the office, we won't buy a business from somebody who's not already rich because if they didn't get rich doing it, we're not going to. Um, and so, you know, we want certainly the money matters, right? I'm not going to sit there and tell you it doesn't um, and price matters. But I would say we're really looking for a type of uh, seller who's far more interested beyond the money, right? They're interested, they care deeply who buys the business. And, and, and if you care deeply who buys the business, it's probably gonna echo down in a very positive way into how you treat your employees, how you treat your vendors, how you treat your customers, right? Um, it's probably gonna be a very sustainable um, type of business as opposed to somebody who's just, hey, I'm gonna try to buy, you know, flip this thing for the, for the biggest cash I can at close and then move on and sort of reinvest it in something else, right? We call those hustles. Um, and so, yeah, we're, I mean, Look, everyone does it a little bit different way, but we tried. That's kind of our way. I have uh, I have the book here. I I've uh, I haven't read it completely, but I've enjoyed it. And I love the way that it's laid out. It's um it's not something that you sort of sit down and read cover to cover. It's more of a almost a reference guide. What, so that was the the reason for writing it was that you could perhaps accelerate those first five to seven hours of conversations. Yeah, yeah. Well, so to get back actually to your original question, which was how do we get deals? Deals are all inbound to us. So we um, we just wait and see who reaches out. Um, sometimes it's intermediaries. Sometimes it's um, uh, sellers themselves. Uh, we've been having a lot of conversations recently um, directly with sellers. And so, um, but it's all inbound. And then we, we try to do is just be highly responsive, obviously very confidential and try to be helpful regardless. I mean, the odds that we're going to be the right fit are probably pretty low. Um, but we try to be, you know, helpful regardless. Um, and yeah, and, and writing the book was a, the big motivation was we, we 
we always try to say, how can we replicate conversation, right? Um, and so the book is something that we can hand to somebody and say, hey, here's kind of what we think. Here's the first five to seven hours of conversation that we want to have with you. Um, if after you're reading it, um, you're done with it and, and you think that we'd still be a good fit, we'd love to have a conversation. And by the way, if you read through that and you say, you know what, I've decided not to sell or I don't think you guys would be a good fit, fantastic. Either way, it saved us a bunch of time and money. Um, and so, yeah, the, the book is kind of meant to be our um, – kind of our conversation initially, but it's also meant to be a reference guide. And so we tried to chop it up in a way that, you know, we actually even reference it during deals. So we'll say, hey, can you flip to, you know, this chapter and, and we're going to talk about working capital, you know, let's, you know, do you mind going kind of referencing that? So it, it just kind of, it provides a, um, a mechanism to sort of smooth the relationship and, uh, and I'll just be very transparent. I mean, we never want to, catch anybody off guard or surprise people with kind of what we're doing and try to be upfront and honest about how we're doing it. Have you sourced deals through the book? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, we certainly, uh, lots of opportunities come. Um, it's, it's gone better than I think any of us expected. I mean, it's a pretty niche audience. We, you know, we, we thought, and, um, uh, we start, certainly started a lot of conversations, uh, that we wouldn't have had any other way. Um, and it's also probably, equally as well, uh, repelled some conversations um, that would have been a big waste of time. I see you've had, uh, you've, since since we've gone into the COVID shutdown, you've had some uh, advertising on your site, you've been pushing it on Twitter where you say, if you can use $3 million responsibly, um, get in touch. How, what, what's, your, what, what's, the, what's the idea behind that uh, marketing push, I guess? Yeah, so we've created a program called Safe Harbor. So typically in the past, there's only been one way to work with us, which is we'll buy a majority of equity in your firm um, and um, uh, we'll work together, right? I mean, that's it. We'll buy somewhere between, you know, kind of 60% and 100% of the firm. And um, we realized that there's a lot of really good businesses that were going to need short-term bridges over a very difficult situation. And we thought that um, it would be a good idea. We still, you know, we're not interested in sort of loan sharking. Uh, and obviously the, the line between loan sharking and being a white knight is pretty thin these days. Um, but, you know, we wanted to use this as an opportunity to say, hey, let's work together in maybe a smaller way that then leads to working together in a bigger way. And those are the conversations that, that really we've been starting. I mean, I had a conversation with a owner of a highly successful business yesterday um, having this exact conversation. He said, hey, I'm not ready to sell a majority. Uh, I think I could probably sell 35%. Um, but then I'd also want, you know, sort of part of the deal of maybe some, some debt attached to it. And we said, yeah, that sounds interesting. So, you know, long term, we still would like the ability to uh, own a majority uh, in, in the long term, um, but we can price that later. We can do all kinds of things to sort of be flexible. Um, the reality of the situation is so we came up with the program before uh, the government came out with their programs. And um, the reality is that um, uh, really the efficacy of that program is dramatically diminished uh, under the current circumstances. Um, I mean, we, we want people like we never want to play the gotcha game. Right. So we want people to go and access capital in, in the best possible way they can. And right now, the government's offering really, really cheap capital to a lot of different businesses. And so we're encouraging people that we had had conversations with and started down that path to just go and, and apply for those government programs, assuming they're they're uh, qualifying for them. And then down the road, we can kind of resume the conversations down you know, later. Why uh, seek uh a majority holding or a 60 to 100% holding as opposed to a minority holding? Yeah, well, so um, there we try to be very hands off. And I think one of the reasons that allows us to be hands off is because ultimately we we do have control. 
right? Um, so we try to be, you know, very benevolent in how we exert control in these in these uh, organizations. Um, but long term, we do want to have the ability to do what we think is in the best long term interest of the business. And um, a lot of people have different time horizons than we do, and so we don't want to be in a position to have to be a forced seller. And and so if you're a minority shareholder, most you know times there's uh, you know drag along rights. It's what it's called. Um, there's also something called tag along rights. Um, but you know we don't want to be dragged along into a deal that we don't want to do. Um, and so oftentimes um, you know we want it to be meaningful, right? We want to be able to uh, have our work. Um, sort of be of a size and of a materiality, not only to our investors, but also to um, sort of our effort. And if we have sort of less than the majority, I mean, it's just likelihood that even if things go well, it doesn't really mean much to us. Um, and obviously, there's a fine line between, you know, 51% and 49%, right? Um, but we, you know, again, it kind of comes back to we, we, we know who we are, and we know what we want to do. And um, we, we try to be very upfront about that. And then it's just a way of uh, aligning everyone's interests. Um, also long-term, if you have a, uh, pretty fractured shareholder base, there's, there's issues long-term with how decisions are made. Um, and when there's disputes, how those decisions get resolved. And you see that it's a lot in like sort of third, fourth, fifth generation family businesses where maybe, you know, the ownership's so fractured that then it gets political. Um, we just like to keep things super simple and us owning a majority and being able to, um, rarely exert that control really helps simplify the situation. And I think it's been a, a source of, of uh, definitely a source of returns for us over time. What's a, what's a typical experience when you undertake an acquisition? And I imagine often you've got, it's probably the founder of the business who's now reached an age where they want to step back from the business a little bit. And so there's either a second generation coming through, or it's someone who's been with the business as a lieutenant for a long time, who's stepping into more of a leadership role. What, what what's the experience do they do you find that that's a, a difficult transition to make or do you feel that people sort of are set free by that or, or what do you how do you find <laughs> yeah so i mean look i, I think every situation is different right um i i it changes scary to everyone right me included right and um and so i think that there's a a time of building trust and sort of testing the relationship and um you know our preferred path is to take somebody who's in the business and elevate them to help lead it and really kind of uh, help everyone grow up into those roles um, that they could be. Um, so in, in that in that sense, I mean, I think that it provides incredible opportunity for for people that are existing companies. I mean, we will occasionally go out and find outside talent um, when we think is really uh, necessary. Um, and those situations, is, it, it's it's we never try to it's never you know pulling one over on anybody. We always try to be very honest and transparent about kind of where we are and co-create that plan with the seller. So like for instance the last uh, acquisitions we did were for two aerospace companies, Packair and AirCert that are actually in your uh, neck of the woods and uh, or neck of the beach, I should say. Um, and um, and and everyone on staff, all the executive leadership said the same thing as well as the owner said, there's just really no one who's in a position to step up to be CEO for a variety of reasons. And so we all agreed and we were all very transparent about it and went out and did a national search and found an incredible leader who's doing a great job. And so, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's this cloak and dagger mentality to a lot of this and we just say, to, you know, throw that away. It's garbage, right? Like, just be honest and transparent with people. Um, be kind and generous, and um, try to be do right by the employees, and ultimately they'll do right by you. Uh, I've you've you've got a reasonably uh, differentiated view of what happens in the economy. I think because you hold a number of businesses, but they're all at a certain level. So, what 
have you seen uh, as a what's been the impact on the businesses as a result of the shutdown and COVID? Yeah, I mean, so so we own nine companies, and um, the the ranges uh, we have a, a few businesses who are. Uh, if I looked at the uh, income statements, I wouldn't be able to tell you anything's going on. To a few that have had, um, you know, a pretty big downturn in demand. Um, and so, you know, it, it really runs the gamut. What I can tell you is when I, uh, so my favorite source of information is relationships that I have with owners of businesses, right? And I'm sort of spending, I would say, gosh, at least 20% of my days these days, just giving calls to different people and saying, hey, what are you seeing and how are you seeing it? Um, giving you sort of your honest view on the ground. And I think that the consensus is if you have, look, th- things are bad. Like I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, in Main Street America, um, even if you're outside of the obvious travel, uh, airline, um, event kind of space, you know, restaurants, um, you know, it's still bad. <laughs> and and your prospects, I mean, there's, you know, I said that probably 90% of businesses have been negatively affected by this. Uh, 5% are kind of robust to it. Um, they're unaffected. And then probably maybe 5% have actually have a tailwind. And so, I mean, look, no one, uh, no one was on the uh, pandemic anti-fragility train prior to this. So it's not like people saw this coming and, you know, it was like sort of a good play. Um, you know, you got lucky if, if this helps your business. Um, and so most of the businesses, though, are, are somewhere between, I would say, um, gosh, kind of 10% off and 30 or 40% off. Um, and these are just nor- sort of normal businesses. Um, and then you're seeing sort of leading indicators, you know, KPIs uh, on longer sales cycles um, that, that are all softening. Now, could they all bounce back? I mean, this is an interesting question of when you look at different businesses, there's some businesses that can defer demand. So, for instance, in our uh, glass and glazing business is a good example of this, right? Like very, no one's signing contracts right now to glaze a, a building, right? Now, there's a lot of bidding going on, but no one's signing contracts. Um Buildings are still going to get built. The question is just when. And so, you know, sort of the demand that you're losing now, um, and there's a backlog, so you don't immediately feel it, but sort of intermediate demand um, could snap back. And so everyone says, okay, let's get back to work and things open back up and, you know, business as usual. Uh, that's very much unlike a, um, you know, a travel business or uh, a restaurant where um, if you don't do it, then you're you're sort of lost it, right? It's not like you're deferring demand from that day to the next. It's not like you know a restaurant's going to go out of business for three months and then going to have you know six months of business in the next three months, right? You can only eat so much. Um, so I think there's a lot of dynamics like like that in these businesses that you know it really varies from being not great to to pretty dire. And, um, you know, then you have a stop start problem in a lot of these businesses as well, where, you know, trying to mothball a business, if you never run a business, trying to mothball, it sounds reasonable, right? Yeah, you, you shut down, tell everyone to come back later, you know, no problem. In reality, when you restart these businesses, um, you got to think about all the key stakeholders. And the stakeholders are all going to have differing circumstances and going to have different changes in their lives. And so employees are going to move. Um, the, the momentum of going to work every day is not going to be there, right? Um, you're maybe have different demands on your time, uh, different responsibilities that pop up as a result of uh, and as a consequence of this. And so, you know, you're not going to have the same employee base when you come back, you know, sort of try to flip, flip the light switch back on. Um, you know, supply chains are a mess right now, um, sort of uh, almost across industries without exception. Um, and, uh, when you was that, was that pre the shutdown in the States as a result of the shutdown in China? 
It, it was exacerbated certainly by it. Um, I mean, it certainly depends on when you, how much ordering you've done, when you ordered it, you know, Chinese New Year had just preceded it. Um, so, uh, you know, if you'd stocked up prior to Chinese New Year, you're kind of in an okay spot. It was actually very fortuitous in that way. If you miss Chinese New Year and you didn't stock up before then, I mean, you're, you're decimated. Um, but it's a good example of like the supply chains. I mean, you start, you flip on the lights and say, okay, I want to start manufacturing my widgets again. Um, all the ingredients that need to go into the mix to, to manufacture, you know, you're likely going to have trouble getting a lot of those things. And so if you have a key component, you know, that you say, okay, well, uh, now I can't get it through the guy I've worked with for 15 years. Let me go out in the market and source it. It's likely going to be a lot higher. You're going to have a, a, a pretty big delay on negotiating the contract. Um, there's just, you know, the sort of the natural friction of business is just going to kick in. And so you could be delayed, you know, let's say the economy opens back up, you could be delayed by another two or three months just based on supply chain. Um, now let's go turn to customers. Do customers have the same demand? Um, do they go and look for other people who can service the demand and want to snap back faster? Um, I mean, there's all, all these, these issues that happen. And so when you think about, you know, you sort of turn off the light switch, you mothball the business and you try to go turn it back on. There is just a tremendous amount of friction, let alone the capital needs. I mean, you have lags in working capital, you know, you're funding losses typically to get things back off the ground. So there's all these things that I, I what I fear, I guess when it, when it comes down to the brass tacks is that big companies are better set up for this than small companies. There's more redundancy, there's more access to capital. Um, there's more heft to throw around with vendors. Um, they're more critical for customers. Um, just frankly, all around big businesses are better set up for, for weathering this than small businesses are. And I just fear that, um, a tremendous amount of mainstream businesses are, are getting smoked and they're, um, it's not that these owners, you know, are, are going to be losing six months to a year of income. Like that's not the problem. Um, the problem is that they're losing their lifetime work and they can't ever recover back into a competitive position. Um, with that said, like, I don't want it to be all like, you know, clubbing baby seals and drowning kittens around here. Right. Um, it, it, there's going to be American ingenuity is incredible, right? Uh, the spirit of entrepreneurship and, um, I am very long-term bullish on the United States. Um, I think it's just unfortunate for current owners, current executives, operators, employees. There's just going to be a lot of destruction. Some of it is going to be creative destruction. I think there's just going to be a lot of destruction that's just destruction, though. Um, and um, it's unfortunate. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's the view that I have as well. Uh, just before coronavirus kicked off what was your view of the economy did you feel that it was running fairly hot or or what were you what were you seeing can you remember back to there was yeah. a time before coronavirus i had this really weird experience we were um i was out in uh, arizona um the day before it really hit me what was in front of us um sort of i was out in arizona the previous two days um and this was in very early march and we were having discussions with companies out there about expansion um, about potentially opening up new operations, um, the economy. We actually had this exact conversation. You know, what, what does the economy feel like? What are we seeing on the ground? And and um, the economy felt um, strong and sustainable is how I would describe it. It did not feel like it was running hot in the sort of 2006, 2007 way. Um, it felt, in fact, you know, I, ironically, it's so funny to, to look back and, you know, God has a great sense of humor, but... Um, you know, I even think I probably used the term like I just don't see a contagion on the horizon, <laughs> you know, um, whoops. Uh, so, um, you know, look, uh, I think there's there's 
there's going to be a new normal that, that resets here. The economy was strong going into this. Um, there's been a lot of destruction. I think there's going to be a lot of um, repair needed and depends on how long this thing goes, right? I mean, if sort of there's two schools of thought, there's the, hey, this thing is uh, either the flattening the curve has worked or the virus is less um, deadly than we previously thought, right? All of the epidemiology um, projections have just been way off. I mean, by uh, in some ways, magnitude's order, right, off. Um, which is great. I mean, that's, that's something that should be celebrated, right? That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, the one school of thoughts looks at that and says, okay, great. We just opened the economy up in, let's call it, you know, sometime in early May. Um, and we get back to normal. Um, okay. I don't know what that normal would really look like. And, and the challenge is if you look at like a Singapore who flattened the curve, you know, you know, basically went down to very few infections, opened back up and then had to shut down again. That's a kind of a nightmare scenario for the United States is, is sort of rolling lockdowns um, over the next, you know, really until we develop a, a, an effective therapeutic uh, or, um, um, you know, a vaccine. Uh, in, yeah. Immunization of some sort. And so, um, you know, I think that we've got kind of three phases to this. I think we've got the lockdown phase or the rolling lockdown phase. We've got sort of a period of winter for all you know, intents and purposes. It's just going to be really hard. It's going to feel like you're kind of running in mud type type situation. Um, a lot of risk aversion. I mean, capital markets are locked up right now. I mean, nothing's getting done um, that requires sort of banking uh, uh, and lending right now. And so um, that's mostly everything. I mean, real estate's you know locked up. Private equity is locked up. Venture capital is locked up. I mean, it's 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 tough right now. Um, and so I think you're going to have a period of of you know a lot of risk aversion. Uh, I think you're going to have a period of dramatically reduced demand, sort of sustainably reduced demand. And then I think you've got a new normal where you know my best guess is that we're probably not. I mean, of course, it's going to vary by industry and and. Um, you know, there's gonna be exceptions to this, but I think overall, you know, we're not going to see the level of economic activity from, you know, sort of 2019 until probably, gosh, 2022, 23, um, maybe even 24. I mean, I, I can see a scenario where we have a, a pretty, you know, contracted economy and, uh, for, for quite a while, um, the unemployment numbers are stunning. I mean, um, I've talked about this on Twitter, uh, quite a bit. I mean, it's way worse. Here's <laughs> the problem: is it's bad. Um, it's it's unbelievably bad, and it's way worse actually on the ground than what the, those numbers are pointing to. Because 1099 employees are not yet counted. Right. Those will be counted here. Um, and a lot of companies had been had been sort of wait and see on what the demand curve was going to look like. Uh, a lot of white collar, so sort of blue collar retail, uh, hospitality, all went first. Um, the next wave you're seeing is, I mean, a lot of Silicon Valley startups that are starting to lay off, you know, 20% to 50% of their workforces. And I think that's going to ripple, 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 ripple out into the economy. And so, you know, I still think 20% unemployment is probably a foregone conclusion that we're going to hit that, which is stunning. I mean, again, it's just unbelievable. And what does the economy look like? What is the, I mean, when one in four of your neighbors doesn't have a job and probably can't pay their mortgage, like, it is a challenging thought to go down that path, right? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, before we went into coronavirus, uh, you know, there's been this pretty material divergence between different types of companies with different types of business models. So as a, I'm a deep value guy, I pref tend to be invested in slower growth, lower return, uh, heavy 
heavier industries than some of the uh, faster growing software as a service type businesses and those uh, the, the multiples for the software as a service businesses type businesses the faster growers less capital intensive businesses has been expanding at a very rapid rate if anything the slower growers have been um, contracting or, or, or staying fairly uh, staying fairly static have you seen any of that in in your business what sort of businesses are you looking to acquire or, or, or what do you does that impact the way where you do anything yeah. So, I mean, so we're, we, we typically shy away from, um, software companies. Um, there are people who do that really, really well. And, and we think that that market has been, uh, well covered. Um, we, we focus more on main street, um, uh, businesses. What I would say is our, our sweet spot is blue collar, um, sort of necessary durable type things, um, that we can also grow rapidly as well. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the advantages that we have in, in working with smaller companies is certainly they're more fragile. Certainly they can go to zero more easily, um, but uh, you can also grow them much more quickly. And so, um, you know, we we want to find things that, you know, sort of if you think about the intersection of sort of low net promoter score, low customer satisfaction. Right. If you want to call it that. Can you um, just expand on that a little bit? What, what are those yeah, things? Yeah. We, so we want to compete against people who are not very good at what they do. Um, right. Like if, if you, um, you know, the, the classic one of this is when was the last time that you, you know, called somebody to come, you know, your HVAC company or your, uh, you know, some local home services office services and they got right back on it. They were a pleasure to work with. They showed up on time. Right. Um, great billing systems, easy to pay them, you know, all that stuff. Very, very unlikely that's happened. Right. Um, and so if you look a lot of the businesses that we're in, um, the people that are operating those businesses don't have a background in business. They typically were, um, were the person who did the thing itself and then sort of, you know, hired a guy and then hired another guy and kind of grew it from there. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we look at a business, we always want to you know, compete in areas that there's not a non-financial reason that you're operating that. So like, you know, every billionaire's son and daughter produces movies, right? Uh, or buys a winery or um, even the marketing firms. I mean, stuff that we were involved in early on, you know, or, or sort of on the sexier end of things, right? Um, marketing, advertising. I mean, we kind of shy away from that. We want to get into things that are, um, you, you would never uh, be a customer of that and say, you know what I want to do? I want to change from the job I have now into doing that thing. So no one drives by a, a home in, you uh, uh, in Arizona in the summer and see somebody digging a swimming pool and shooting it with, you know, concrete and says, you know what I want to do? I want to get out of my air conditioning and, and go out there and dig some pools. Right. Um, so those are good examples or roofing or something like that. Um, so those are the types of businesses. So we look at kind of net promoter score fragmentation is another really big one for us. So we like to get into things that are high fragmentation, uh, meaning there's a lot of uh, smaller players. Uh, there may be a couple bigger players, but but there's a lot of room for consolidation and for growth. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of looking at the intersection of those two things primarily um, and um, looking for teams that we can partner with. Well, that's very interesting. But how do you apply that to, say, the two aerospace companies that you've bought? How does that, uh, how do they, when you apply that analysis, how do they appear? Yeah, well, so... Um, uh, when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of those businesses, they are um, warehouses of parts that you're, you know, sort of buying at one price, warehousing, repairing maybe, and then selling. So the actual, I mean, you say aerospace is like, oh, that's a sexy business, right? Yeah. 
we're not designing, you know, uh, supersonic jets here. Um, we are, uh, in, in essence, a hedge fund for airplane parts, if you want to think about it that way. Interesting. Um, where we're physically taking um, uh, uh, custody of the of the asset, right, and then and then having risk that. Um, you know, the demand drops or the price falls or whatever it'd be. Um, and so, you know, we, the sort of the core engine of that business is a, is a warehouse of, you know, four or 500,000 airplane parts. And uh, they vary from, you know, large pieces to microscopic, tiny little pieces. Um, and so, you know, that's for us is a great example of it's boring, it's mainstay, it's um, certainly we can talk about the demand curve and how, you know, a 95% plus drop in, in commercial air traffic uh, uh, changes that business, uh, at least short term. But I mean, long term, look, people are going to fly on airplanes. Um, travel's not going to be decreased sustainably over a long period of time. We're going to have a reset period. Um, but it's look, it's a blue collar business. It's high fragmentation. I mean, there's a lot of these small players that service um, the parts business. Um, and so high fragmentation. And, and you know, most of them are, um, I would say, uh, we, well, we bought the business we bought because we thought they were very, very good at customer service, great reputation. Um, there's a lot of shady actors in that space. And uh, there's a lot of value in being, um, sort of the, the cleanest shirt in the closet. How do you assess growth for businesses, not necessarily the aerospace business, but how are you thinking about growth when you, you find that uh, not a particularly sexy business in a fra- in a fractured, uh, fragmented market rather? Yeah. Then what, what do you, how do you then think about growing that business? Well, again, it depends on the business. I mean, most businesses grow um, because they can't find new customers and can't sell them well. Um, and so one of the things that we really like to do is to work on the marketing and advertising and lead gen side of the business. Um, and, um, you know, we, we joke, we call it the foie gras strategy, which is you just cram as much down the, you know, the front end as possible <laughs> and you get, you get something beautiful. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, how sales systems work, um, sales incentives, um, uh, all of that I think matters. I mean, for the most part, though, these businesses, again, are really good at the thing they do. They're probably just not good at, again, the business of business. Um, and so it's sometimes as simple as putting up a website. Not joking. I'm, I'm, I literally am not joking. Um, uh, other times it's, it's a pretty advanced, uh, online marketing system. It's, uh, maybe, uh, uh, engaging with, uh, you know, some PR it's, um, um, hiring, you know, and, and helping staff the companies. I mean, access to talent is a really, um, interesting challenge in these smaller businesses. Um, so not only is there so kind of, if you just take a step back maybe and say, okay, who, who works in these smaller companies? Typically, if you either as a full-time employee or as a contractor, have the ability to work at a larger company, more prestigious company, higher paying job, you typically take it, right? This is not complicated. So what you find is is, um, access to talent for a lot of these small businesses is really challenging. And so what we're able to do, we have a a program called Orbit um, that people who've raised their hand and said, you know, interested in working with permanent equity, um, either at the permanent equity level or in your portfolio companies. And that's how we've recruited a lot of the people who, who now work in the companies and being able to bring in a type of talent that you know, a small business owner just normally wouldn't have access to, wouldn't have the relationships with, uh, wouldn't know how to compensate, wouldn't know how to talk about it, and can also sort of hive into a larger team um, that, um, yeah, can be really productive. So I would say there is a combination of all those things along with, you know, the proper financing and how do you organize things and, you know, how do you how do you get audited? I mean, these are all the things that just 
It's professionalization, as you said earlier, that we're trying to help slowly over time bring to the table. We don't want to, you know, you could sort of shock the business so much by instituting all these processes and procedures and and it makes it really difficult to actually do the thing itself that you should be doing. Um, we never want to take our eyes off of our customers and um, we always want to be focused on them. But at the same time, you know, we believe that you can, you know, constantly be getting better, sort of 1% better every day, right? Type mentality. Uh, one of the, uh, I, I'm not sure if it was you who, who tweeted it out or if it was something that I saw that perhaps you were commenting on, but one of the things that I was surprised that I saw on Twitter, you were discussing incentives or you were discussing pay for management. And I think that it was very, the very vast majority of employees prefer cash to any sort of equity, which I, I, I thought was completely counterintuitive. What do you, do, do, was that you who sent that out? Do you have any comment on that? I mean, uh, I don't know exactly what you're referencing, but I would say, um, yeah, one of the lessons that, I mean, most people um, want to be paid in cash. I mean, uh, for sure. Uh, certainly, uh, long-term incentives matter, and um, you want to be uh, generous and and share, you know, sort of as, as the company wins, you want to share that. How that actually looks, though, in practice is usually you pay people more in cash, and people are really appreciative of that. Um, you know, it... it if you don't have a background in finance and you don't understand sort of um, what risks and rewards you sort of the trade-offs of of what you're doing, um, you know a lot of times equity programs and by the way rightfully so um, don't get paid out. And so I think there's a natural distrust. There's a lack of knowledge and natural distrust of sort of deferred compensation unless it's outrageously clear. And that's one of the things we you know really try to work on in our companies is making sure that whatever the incentive programs are, incentive systems, how we win together is abundantly obvious. It's not gamed. It can't be cheated. It's it's you know, um, yeah. In theory, it's one of those things like in theory, um, a bunch of deferred equity that sits under a bunch of debt, like kind of how traditional private equities incentivize their leadership teams um, sounds really, really great um, until you're part of the big chunk of companies that never pay that out. And then you've just taken reduced comp uh, for a very long period of time and don't have a lot to show for it. So you're less interested in the precise detail of the incentive plan and, and more interested in that it be very clear and well communicated and, and not not gameable, as you say. Yeah, and fits this and fits the situation, right? I mean, every type of company is gonna have a slightly different reason for incentivizing, and you gotta be really careful. I mean, you, you can get some very perverse incentives very quickly that are that are sort of not obvious in the beginning um, by changing and tweaking around uh, incentives. And so our position on on whether it's compensation or you know processes in the businesses is a high dose of humility in coming in and saying hey look we we're getting involved with you all because you're successful already um this is not a turnaround situation right so we don't want to strip everything and kind of restart from scratch so we're very um careful if we say okay look like we think that you're incentivizing this way now. I mean, we had a company that was incentivizing salespeople based on revenue. Well, discounting's a pretty logical, um, you know, pretty logical conclusion of that. Right. So if you start maybe uh, incentivizing based on gross profit, right, or on net margin or whatever you want to call it, right, um, that's going to incentivize some different behavior. And so there's things like that, that that I think are more obvious. But we certainly would not want to come in and say, okay, guess what? Everyone, we're asking you, we're going to pay you, you know, X amount more, but you're only going to get, you know, 80% of your current comp in cash because of uh, we're going to do this other incentive programming. People would revolt, and I would revolt if I was them. Um, you know, you you intentionally selected into that company based on that compensation program. Um, you're okay with it, hence you're still there. 
Um, and so, you know, for us, we want to kind of be very, very careful and high humility around how we tweak stuff. For folks who are interested in entrepreneurship through acquisition or search funds or anything like that, do you have any advice for uh, folks getting started in something like that? Um, under the current circumstances, it's going to be a really tough um I, I, I spent a lot of time before you went out on your own right now, setting up your capital and making sure that it's really rock solid because I can see um, somebody saying, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'll, you know, I'll back you and no, no problem at all. Um, I think there's gonna be a lot of um, disappointed deals on the finish lines uh, over the next um, couple of years. And so I think my, my best advice right now would be make sure you get your capital sources locked down, make sure you have a clear vision of how the entire capital stack would be um, organized and then, um, yeah, just make sure you get all your ducks in a row. Yeah, uh, my, my experience is you raise about 20% of the capital that you promised. So you need to raise five yeah. times as much as you think you need. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Brent, absolutely wonderful talking to you today. Very much appreciate the insights. If folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so um, permanentequity.com is the is the website. Um, we've got some uh, email lists you can sign up for that we release whenever we release content or do something. Um, we typically try to hit that hit that list and let people know. Um, I'm at Brent P. Shore on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, try to be very accessible. I mean, our whole team, uh, we try to make sure that we're, we're available. And um, as you are holding up the, book, the book there. Uh, the Messy the, Marketplace. Yeah, you can go on the Amazon um, and pick up uh, the Messy Marketplace. Um, and um, yeah, let me know if you have any feedback. I mean, I, I really, one of the things I enjoy most is when people, um, you know, read the book and have some very constructive criticism uh, coming out of it. Hey, you, you know, I'd really love for you in a later edition to include this, or I disagree with this. It starts really good conversations. So um, yeah, if anybody has any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Brent, be sure permanent equity. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Sir. <laughs>